So we are uh, uh, on Perakashmini, Bitsua Enoshit, human existence, human uh, nature. Um, so, Iev Shoshi Valeda Damit Hirat in Yeno Beteva Bal Malo Valobal Chisaron. So, this is important because this, this uh, basically, the topic is going to be uh, free choice, which we know that the Rambam returns to in many different places, and he makes a big deal out of it in, uh, in Hilchot Teshuvah, actually, also at the end, right? It's very famous where he talks about the idea of free choice uh, in, uh, in Hilchot Teshuvah. So it's impossible for a person to be born as a bal ma'ala or bal chisaron. Now keep that in mind because that's a little bit of a strange statement because then he's going to back, he's going to walk that back and it seemingly say the opposite, okay? So he says a person cannot be born as having virtue or vice. Uh, just like you can't be born knowing one of the arts. Now what he means by melachot meaning knowing one of the crafts. Like no child is born knowing how to uh, sew or write or anything like that. But a person could be born with a nature that is prepared, lends itself, has a, you know, has a propensity for certain, uh, certain vices or virtues. Meaning to say that uh, one activity or set of activities is uh, easier for them, comes more naturally to them, like we would say, than other ones. So a person could have, let's say, a natural ability or a natural tendency towards something, but they don't necessarily, they're not going to know the art of doing it that, without studying it. Let's say a person is musical, but they didn't learn, like they have a, an, an affinity for music, but they didn't learn how to play an instrument. They're not going to be born knowing how to play an instrument, but they might have a, like a, you know, even from very, very young age, uh, musical prodigies are already like expressing their interest in music and their attraction to music and all that. Uh, and then, then they have to learn the art. Obviously, they get a teacher and so on. Same is true for Torah or anything. Person uh, needs to uh, might have a natural inclination towards learning, but that doesn't mean that they're gonna. That doesn't teach them anything. So this is based upon the uh, medical understanding of the uh, medieval times, which was. Um, based on the theory of humors that, you know, different bodily fluids and dryness and wetness and all this stuff have to do with a person's character. Now we have, we have a little bit more of a sophisticated understanding of these things. I'm not sure how much more, but, uh, you know, I, they, had a, they had an inkling that there was a relationship between certain qualities, physical qualities of the body and uh, substances or uh, in the body and uh, correlating with certain um, personality characteristics or certain, um, certain emotional uh, responses or whatever it was. And uh, nowadays, we also believe that because we have, like, we talk about hormones and we talk about, um, and we talk about you know, obviously the DNA kind of presents you with a certain set of uh, characteristics that are uh, what you're handed as your, uh, your lot for life. So we definitely have that idea also of hormones and, um, and you know, that's why medicine, for example, can regulate mood or affect mood or so on. So that definitely they, they were right about that, but their exact model of the different humors and what they signified and bile and this and that, I'm not sure if that has any uh, validity to it from today's perspective, but it was, uh, it was an attempt to understand how the body uh, how the body and character or personality are related. And even today we have the same understanding that there is such a relationship. It's just that we would formulate it in different terms because we have different categories. That's all. So he says, if a person is, tends towards dryness, then he has a very... Uh, if he has a uh, dry brain, I don't know, a very... Um, his, he leans towards the dry, so his brain is um, has a uh, a more um, uh, pure uh, nature and his, and less moisture. You know, whatever these things uh, exactly mean. Uh, it will be easier for him to learn and remember and understand things. Uh, 
more than a person who has like uh, the white pus or something like that, has a lot of lechut uh, b'moach. He has a lot of um, uh, uh, moisture in his brain. I guess that would that'd be a really good insult um, that we could bring back. You know, you're, you're, you have a moist brain, you know. It means the person is more, more dense. Well, we actually do use similar uh, phrase, sort of phrases when we make fun of people related to their, uh, to their brain. Like we say, he's very dense. Dense means like nothing can penetrate into his brain, you know. Here he's literally saying that if you have a moist brain, you, you will not, um, you, will, you won't be able to understand as much. But if you, if you take the person who has this tendency towards uh, this dry brain, whatever, you know, this drier nature, and therefore more receptive to intellectual things, if you take him and you don't teach him anything, he's not going to use his uh, abilities, so he's still going to end up being a fool, meaning it doesn't make you smart. It just gives you a certain tendency or uh, capacity. Similarly, when, uh, when they teach and cause the person to understand, even though that person has the moist brain, okay, he'll have a little bit more difficulty, but he'll be able to learn. In other words, what he's saying is that you can have certain advantages or disadvantages biologically, but that doesn't mean that you can't learn. And having the advantage doesn't mean having the advantage. Let's say people are always like, oh, he has a very high IQ. IQ is a terrible measure of anything because IQ is basically uh, a test that is devised to see if you will succeed academically. It's not really a test. And, and it requires a lot of... Um, it presupposes a lot of learning of information and specific skills that are taught in school. So it's not really a raw measure of ability. Um, so, so when I'm using IQ, I'm just using it as a metaphor. But the idea that a person has, let's say, a certain capacity, intellectual capacity, doesn't, you could say this guy's a genius, but he doesn't learn anything, so he doesn't use it. Right? Or the other guy's an idiot, but he works really hard, so he knows a tremendous amount because he really pushed himself to get there. Like they say about the Nativ, the famous story about the Nativ. <clears throat> the famous story about the Nativ that he was not really that smart, not really that, that precocious of a child. He was like one of the few Gdolim <clears throat> that they say it wasn't precocious as a child. There are a few other ones too that they, a lot of times they try to censor their biographies and take those parts out because they think that they reflect badly on them. You know? But uh, they had a famous one. Uh, they, there was a famous one of Rav Kamenetsky that they... Uh, uh, that they wanted to um, censor it, whatever, because it said about certain dolim that they weren't that in their youth they were not uh, they weren't such uh, precocious uh, uh, wonder children. The uh, the the reality is that um, you know the, the the story about the nativ is that his parents almost took him out of yeshiva when he was in the, when he was at a young age because he wasn't succeeding in his learning and he like they, he really wasn't making it and then one day he came and he begged his parents please I'm going to work harder I'm really going to do it you know don't take me out of the yeshiva so they decided to keep him in the yeshiva and he became the nativ so uh, the uh, the point is that that you can you can go you you might not have that natural gift but that doesn't mean you can't get there with uh, with your hard work now and the, and vice versa so a person has a hot heart okay so he has the tendency towards gvura towards strength and 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 mightiness if they train him to do that, he'll channel that energy and he'll use, he'll utilize, actualize that capacity and he'll become a real uh, macho guy. However, so the other guy has uh, more of a, uh, what he, what's calling here a cold heart, and, but not in the way that they use it in, in English, meaning cruel. Rather, it's a certain type of physical disposition that leads to you being weaker, okay? He doesn't have as much testosterone, we would say today, or something like that, right? I guess that's, that's how they would, they, they would say it, right? Um, so then he'll be a little weaker. However, right? if you teach him to be a wimp, 
he'll, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll take it right away. He's not going to become a really macho guy unless you really work hard to train him. Uh, the point is that he can, uh, he can achieve being a manly guy, being a mighty uh, warrior if you really train him properly, even if he doesn't have the tendency. It's just going to be harder for him. So all the tendency does is make certain, a certain path easier for you. What's going to be the easy road for you versus what's going to be difficult? Some people can sit for 12 hours sitting and learning. They have that capacity. For other people to sit for one hour is hard. That doesn't mean that the guy who sits for one hour can't sit for five hours. It's just harder. Right? And that's true with any, uh, with any capacity, with any tendency that the more... Uh, that it could be trained. So uh, there, uh, there was a book I read one time years ago. It talked about music, but it was um, it was talking about how this guy who kind of was like a self-taught uh, musician, uh, he sort of told his autobiography of how he got to that point, and and it was a very it was an interesting story. And in the course of the story, he mentioned that he once encountered somebody who said they were tone deaf and he was able to teach them to recognize notes and things like that. And he's like, tone deaf is not a real thing. He's like, it just means that you, uh, don't, ha- that you don't have a natural affinity for music, but, uh, but he trained the guy to do it, to recognize it and he'll do it. It's just harder. That's all. Okay. So that's, so that's and that's the, uh, that's the, um, the beginning of what he's saying is that there's these natural predispositions, okay? But there's no ma'alav chisaron. What does that mean? That means that ma'alav chisaron, and, and we're going to, well, actually, no, I'm not going to tell you it yet. Let's get there, all right? Now, I explained this to you. So you won't believe in the craziness. Oh, actually, that's interesting because that was just what, uh, what Chaim was asking last night in the, uh, in the uh, chat um, or tonight for you guys. In, or this afternoon for you guys, I guess, in the chat, right? Don't think that the craziness that the Chachmea uh, Kochavim is being said with, if he had uh, quotation marks around it, he would put, you know, he would put this Chachmea Kochavim as uh, the, the astrologers basically say, because they believe that the birth of a person, the moment of the birth of a person determines whether he's going to be virtuous or uh, a bad guy. And that the person is going to be forced to uh, become one way or another. He said, I know that the matter is uh, that the Torah teaches us and also the, the uh, Greek philosophy uh, as has been demonstrated with true arguments that a person has uh, free choice. Nothing can force him or bring him to action other than himself. So uh, that's the, or Yichbad rather. So that's the idea that the, um, his nature can lean him towards certain direction that it becomes easier for him or harder for him. But at the end of the day, it's his choice. But the idea that something would be impossible for him or would be necessary is not the case. Because if it were true that a person was predetermined in his actions and the whole Torah would be false, because there's no choice for a person in what he can do. And also the idea of teaching and educating and training, teaching any kind of a practical uh, skill, this would all be a waste of time. Because once you start saying that a person, this is an interesting point, that uh, once you start saying that a person has no choice in their actions, that will also affect the fact that they can't really learn to do any craft. Because a craft is a matter of making certain educated choices in your actions. Right? Meaning when you, the, the person who's uh, sewing a garment chooses the right materials and how to line them up and how to organize them, how to, how, you know, how to put the needle and how to, all that. It's also a series of choices. So even melachot will be uh, impossible, 
Okay, so he says, לפי דאטה אומרים זה, שמוכרח שלא יעשה הפועל הפלוני, ומבלתי שידה חוכמה פלונית, שתהיה לו עמידה פלונית. So it's a, that uh, it's a, if, if the person thinks it's impossible for certain things to be done, or to know certain things, or to have certain characteristics. והגמול והעונש גם כן עוול, הגמורה. הן ממנו קצתנו לקצתנו, הן מהשם יטבח לנו. It will also be totally wrong to punish criminals, whether human, human justice or divine justice. שזה ששמעון הרג לרובן, אחר שזה מוכרח שיהרוג. How can you, uh, how can you punish שמעון for killing רובן when it was necessary that he do that? Right? וזה מוכרח שיהרג, למה נענש שמעון? And also, why are you punishing רובן when, uh, why are you punishing שמעון when uh, רובן was de- destined to be killed? ואיך ייתכן עליו גם כן, יתברך צדיק וישר הוא שאנשהו על פועל שיאפשר לו שלא יעשהו. How can you punish him for something, a person for something that he had no choice? ואפילו הוא השתדל שלא יעשהו, לא יכול. Even if he tried not to do it, he had no choice. והיו בטלות גם כן הכנות כולם עד סופם, מבנות בתים, וכנוס הממון, ולברוח בעת הפחד, וזו אותה מן הדומים להם. And everything that we do, building houses, acquiring money, running away from danger, all these things are all predestined, כי אשר נגזר שיהיה, אי אפשר מבלתי היותו. Because that would mean that whatever happens is predetermined and there's no way it could be otherwise. זה כולו שקר גמור, וכנגד המושכל והמורגש, it's against the intellect and what we feel, והריסות חומת התורה, לגזור על השם יתברך. He says, and it's also breaking down the wall of the Torah to say about Hashem that he is unjust, God forbid. Now, the idea is what? So this is the Rambam is bringing all of the, uh, all of the arguments in favor of free choice and against the idea of predetermination, um, moral arguments and logical arguments and so on, that really nothing would, everything would be, uh, there would be no concept of... Uh, of morality or of accountability, responsibility for our actions if things were predetermined. And we don't experience, we experience the reality of free choice, when we exercise it regularly. You would have to say that that feeling is an illusion, right? That experience of you're having free choice when you have a, a, a decision to make is an illusion according to the determinists who say that you don't have, you don't actually have such a choice. It's what they call an epiphenomenon. It seems to be there, but it's really not. Right? Yeah. Uh, how do we understand what he's saying in the context of people with uh, you know, cognitive disabilities, mental impairments? Meaning? Um, meaning people will commit heinous crimes mm. and they'll plead insanity. Um, maybe they are, maybe they're not. We have such an idea as a shoten, halachatu. Meaning that the, a person who doesn't have the full ability to make choices could exist. It's just a rarity. And even there, even the Shoteh has choice. It's just that he's not, he, he's, he has, you know, you can medicate them, you can help them. It's just that it's extremely difficult for them. So they have a tremendous disadvantage. But at the end of the day, um, they are still the cause of the behavior that happened. The question is, okay, if they really had such a disadvantage, should we punish them as severely since the ability, they did, it wasn't like a, it's not the same as a person, let's say, who makes, a, con- who makes a, a decision to do a crime when you have a, um, an impulse that is so powerful that it's unmanageable. For the, it's, you know, the, it requires, it demands so much more from the person to be able to overcome it, and they don't have the tools to do that. So you have sympathy and uh, compassion for the person, but that's not because they didn't actually choose to do the behavior. It's just that the choice was so, it was so much more difficult for them to make the right choice because of certain tendencies that they have or impairments that they have. So then the question is, what do we do about, let's say, consequences for that person? What makes sense as a consequence for that person? That's why they send them to a mental hospital because they say, really, this person doesn't have the tools to manage their impulses and tendencies and therefore we have to give them the tools rather than focus on 
the outcome of their action, but that's not because they're, they're not responsible in the sense that they did make a free choice to engage in the action. It's just that the free choice wasn't, uh, um, was somewhat unfair for them because they, uh, they have so many disadvantages. Just like if a person, let's say, uh, you know, to put it in a different framework for a second, but let's say a person is in a social situation where it's extremely difficult to make the right choice. You know, that's also, uh, that's also a disadvantage. So when they choose something, like, didn't everyone's mom say, well, if your friends jumped off the top of a building, would you do that too? You know, when you told them that, well, everyone was doing this bad thing. Well, if your friends jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge, would you go do that also or whatever, right? The idea being that even though you, you could blame it on social influence, meaning when you're under the influence of all, everyone else doing something bad, of course, it's much harder to make the right choice. That doesn't mean you didn't make the choice, though. No, no actual, let's say, court of law will say, well, well, since your friends were all doing it, I guess uh, you're, not, you're not responsible. You still are. It was just harder for you to exercise the, your, your uh, you know, proper, cho- proper judgment. Um, and that's, that's the... Pro- so if somebody were deemed insane, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. If, why that's saying? If a person... Is, right, I mean, if a person doesn't have a functioning mind at all, because they're totally what we call minutak from reality, they have no connection to reality at all because they're psychotic. So that person is, um, what's causing that person to do the behavior is literally forces beyond their control, but it's an exception, a very exceptional case. With that, with, sorry, Dan, I know you're, you're waiting. With that exception, could you apply it? Uh, also to, to pathological people, people with pathologies. And I mean, uh, I've watched these documentaries on these, uh, the guys on death row. Mm. And it seems to be that they, you know, every, every ounce of their, every fiber of their being genuinely wants to change the behavior. They, they really feel like they're, they aren't possessed and they're, uh, you know, they're acting beyond, uh, you know, what, what their mind would allow them to do. Right. Yeah, it's uh, in those cases they have at the still um, they could. I don't think in any of those cases they literally cannot choose otherwise. It's just that it's so incredibly difficult that it's like uh, I guess if you could think of something in your own life that would be incredibly difficult for you to resist. For us, it would be some normal thing. You know, for them, it's, uh, it's an abnormal thing, but it's like incredibly difficult for them to resist to the point that they have to be like, they have to, they're like a Nazir, basically, that they have to put themselves, the Nazir is a person that feels that his desires are so powerful that he needs to be restricted in certain ways, um, extra restrictions and limitations to prevent them from falling into uh, a pattern of behavior that would be damaging. So these people, basically, the only thing they can do is like live in behind bars. Otherwise, if they're exposed to the temptation, they feel like oh, I won't be able to control it myself. Um, that is, in a way, showing that they're conscious of it and it is a choice at the end of the day. It's just that they... Uh, it's just incredibly difficult for them that we can't really imagine because we don't have those kinds of impulses to have to control. You know, but medication can actually help sometimes with certain things or uh, other kinds of medical interventions to make it a little bit less, um, a little bit less overwhelming. But no, you're right. You know, where do you draw the line? You draw the line when the person literally, look, the person's mind is involved. They decide to do it. They just say, they, you know, it's not, it's not that they don't know what's going on and they're psychotic and they think that they're uh, the Satan coming to uh, uh, terrorize the earth and they're driven by, you know, whatever a psychotic person imagines when what they're doing. It's not to that level. These people are calculated and, they have a, and they're making a decision. It's just that they, they don't have the strength to fight against the impulse, um, but they could be hopefully you know could be could be changed. That's that's the idea. Yes, a uh, person who has their hand up, yellow hand. Um, so this maybe a little bit 
little bit out of, this, out of the scope of what we're speaking about, but um, every time this comes up, as you said before, it comes up a lot. Uh, he brings it up in many different places. I can never understand or even conceptualize where Jewish legitimate like Rishonim who posit that the world is run by pure determinism I can never understand how they answer any of these points how they think of the world what's the point of the world, what's the point of the Torah mm-hmm. it, it just seems I can't even begin to play devil's advocate to understand yeah, I once tried to read this philosopher named Leibniz, who's a determinist, and I read like a, few, a couple of chapters, and it just seemed so self-contradictory and absurd, I couldn't even finish it. It's a, there's so many problems with it, and Spinoza also had this deterministic idea. It just doesn't make any sense. Why are you writing a book about ethics if people have no choice anyway? But uh, it's the same question. I've never, the only people that they say ever who had that view that I've seen, and maybe you've seen other sources, the sources that I've seen that allegedly have that view is the Kreskas, um, the uh, Or Hashem by Rav Chastai Kreskas, and uh, the Ish Rebbe, basically. But like, besides that, I never, I, uh, and when I, in my youth, it's been a long time, I got to open the book, it's on my shelf, but, uh, and look, but... Um, I, when I looked in uh, Chastai Kreskas' book year, many years ago, decades ago, I don't remember when, um, I didn't see it as being so obviously deterministic as, uh, as everyone claims. And I, I, think, I think my son also said that he read some of it and he didn't think so either. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, you know, uh, he also... Uh, he had Talmidim, and I don't think any of them followed that position, as far as I know. Um, and then the Ishbitzer Rebbe is different. That's like he was very controversial for having um, having these uh, deterministic uh, ideas. So I don't think that it's such a strong. Tr- I don't see it as being a trend that's really very uh, common. And uh, do you know of any other sources that talk about it? today when they different rabbanim or teachers try to struggle to explain the gap between the hashkacha of Hashem and I've heard it many times, not once or twice, many, many times that the rabbi, the teacher, which is opt for yeah, at the end of the day uh, Hashem, God's hashkacha rules over everything and you don't really have free choice and it doesn't really matter what you do in business or what health decisions you make, at the end of the day, God's already predetermined the day you're going to die and how much money you're going to make. It's become, even if people don't act that way, even though they make decisions every day that kind of go in the face of that, I've still heard it repeated many times, this idea that at the end of the day, God is going to make a decision whether you live or die, so... We have to, we have to, line be, we have to do our Kishnah loop, but then today it doesn't make a difference. A good example of, uh, a good litmus test, as I used to say, of uh, whether an idea is uh, well thought out or a good, or whether an idea is, uh, uh, is correct is, as I've mentioned before, whether it, Appeals. The extent of its emotional appeal is sometimes uh, a good measure of whether it's uh, coming from a place of intellect or not. Now, what makes more? What's more emotionally appealing? No matter what you do, it's going to be the same outcome because God has a specific plan, and therefore you're not really responsible for anything that happens in the world, good or bad. Your choices are not really that significant. And you can just trust in God and do more or less whatever you want because you are not, your, your choices are not really in any way impactful. Or if I tell you actually everything is just a matter of potential as it exists now. Your choices can either make or break your future. They can impact the world in 
incredibly significant ways, either for good or bad. And how you exercise your free choice is going to make all the difference in terms of your future, the future of your family, future of your community, because you can get up today and be a leader and make a difference, or you can sit back and do nothing and allow things to go the way that they are and just allow yourself. And therefore, you are the author of your own destiny. Which one is more emotionally appealing to most people, the first one, because it, it takes all of the accountability and responsibility off of you. You never have to feel that you failed. I didn't miss the train because I didn't get up in time and didn't get ready in time and didn't plan ahead and so on. No, it was because Hashem didn't want me to go on the train. Okay. You know, that's, that, that feels really good to say that because you don't have to uh, take any blame for anything that uh, went wrong. But it, you're just using Hashem as an excuse for all of your own failures. And so it's, uh, and so, or for, you know, what, what is every, and as you said, every source that says, oh, Yerovam ben Nevat could have been the greatest tzaddik and walked next to David Melech in uh, Gan Eden, and instead he became the biggest rasha. I guess that was just predetermined. So why did Hashem tell him to keep the mitzvot and he would be able to have a, uh, uh, establish a monarchy parallel with David? What, what, why did he say that? Because there was no choice. There's so many million, million examples of, uh, of the same. I mean, uh, we could sit here and talk about every single story in Tanakh and the choices that were made by people that either made a difference, positive or negative, and could have gone the other way. And they were the actors who brought about, like basically what those Lahavdil, and I'm not, you know, I don't know who the people are you're talking about, so uh, I can't be guilty of uh, trashing them because I don't even know who they are. But, the, um, but it's, this is the philosophy of Lavan, by the way, what they're talking about. Talking about the philosophy of Lavan. Lavan's philosophy is that Yaakov shows up at his, you know, at, to Lavan and he starts working for him and he works really hard and all of a sudden Lavan starts succeeding. Okay? And what does Lavan say? He doesn't say, wow, you're really working hard and that's why my, suddenly I'm making tons of money and I have tons of cattle. He says what? Nichashti. I did my occult uh, magic and I determined that blessing came to me because of you. Meaning, you're a good luck charm. You brought me mazal. That's all. What does that mean? That means there's no correlation between actual work, choice to work, investment of time, and success. And what does Yaakov Avinu do at the end when he gives that whole long speech where he gets really angry with Lavan? He starts describing how he had all these sleepless nights for 20 years and he took responsibility and he did this and he did that and he worked so hard. And Lavan just ignores it and he just says, everything here is mine. He doesn't have the concept of a, of, of a relationship between effort and, and result. And I'll show you an interesting story at the very beginning, right? The weird story where Yaakov shows up and he sees the people waiting around the well to move the rock, you know? And he says, uh, why are you sitting? It's not time to go home. What are you guys doing sitting around this well? And the guy's like, oh, well, we wait until everyone comes and then we roll the rock off and then we, then we roll it back. And Yaakov goes and he moves the rock. It's like, what is the point of this story? What does that have to do with anything in the subsequent narrative, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the story. It's just a random story about people sitting around and on their long coffee break and waiting to, uh, waiting to move a rock. What's the, what's, what, what's the thing? It's showing you from the very outset, Yaakov saw a culture of passivity. The people are like sitting around and wait, everyone's waiting for somebody else to do something. Nobody's taking an initiative. Yaakov, what, Yaakov Avino, we know for sure, was not uh, a bodybuilder. He was like a guy who sat around watching the sheep all day. He was, you know, Esav was a bodybuilder. How come he was able to move the rock and nobody else was? Okay, so the Midrashim will say, oh, he was so strong and all that. But the shot is that they were just sitting around doing nothing. The people were not doing, they were not, you know, nobody took initiative in the, in the culture and that's why they weren't successful. Then Yaakov comes along and he takes initiative and he takes responsibility and he succeeds. And what's, yeah, what's uh, Lavan's concern? Uh, you took my idols. Uh, 
Um, you know, everything according to him is a determinism, is a, is a uh, fatalism, and uh, a, a removing of the responsibility from, uh, you know, from human beings for their success. It's not because of me, it's because of uh, forces beyond my control that happened to align when Yaakov came because he brought me Mazal. You know, it's like that funny story about I've told before about the guy whose business is not doing well and his, his friend's business down the street is doing well. So when he comes to the rabbi, he's like, why is my friend's business succeeding so much? What's going on? I'm failing. My business is failing. His business is doing so well. Why is it? Why is it? Why is it? So the rabbi said, I want you to do a special segula for making a lot of uh, being successful. Every 10 minutes, I want you to kiss the mezuzah in the front of the door of your business Every 10 minutes, no matter what you're doing, you stop, you kiss the mezuzah. says, okay. So he goes back to the store and every 10 minutes, no matter what he's doing, he goes and he kisses the mezuzah. All of a sudden he starts making a ton of money. All of a sudden his business starts doing so well. It's incredible. So he goes back to the rabbi and he's like, rabbi, I don't understand. How does this gula work? How is it that all this time I was suffering, you know, wasn't doing well and, 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 and now I start kissing the mezuzah and I'm doing well? He said, when you came and told me how well your friend's business was doing, I realized you were spending too much time at your friend's store. So I told you, kiss the mezuzah every 10 minutes so you would stay in your store. Now you're starting to succeed because you stayed in the store. Okay? That's the, that, but that's the whole point. The point is that when you, well, you, know, that you, you think it's going to be some magical thing, but the reality is that choices make a difference. Of course, the ultimate example of that is Esther and Mordechai probably, of, you know, the most of all, meaning there, where human strategy, where you have Haman who thinks everything is predetermined and, 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 uh, and what's her name? You know, Zeresh who thinks everything is predetermined and fatalistic. And then you have uh, Mordechai and Esther who say, no, if we, use a, if we develop a plan and we have a strategy, of course, there are still factors outside of our control that we have to pray that they fall into place. But at the end, but in reality, uh, it's our choices and our uh, strategy that is going to be responsible for a success or failure, period. So when uh, Mordechai says, yes. Mordechai, right. Because he's saying, based on the Havtacha, based on the Havtacha, that the Jewish people are not going to be destroyed. So we have, uh, you know, there's a, we know that the Jewish people won't be destroyed, so some other thing will happen, but how that will happen, we don't know. Could it happen, uh, uh, it could it have happened in a, uh, it, there are many ways it could happen. What would have happened if Moshe Rabbeinu, for example, in the Malon on his way to Mitzrayim had not survived because Tzipurah didn't do the Brit Milah and, uh, and, uh, on the baby and uh, it said, Vayivakesh Hamito, Hashem wanted to kill Moshe. What if he had died? What would happen then? The Jewish people just would have been like, okay, sorry, uh, there's no Jewish people. Or what would have happened if the Jews had died at Egel HaZahav? Uh, or one of, you know, one of the other Chata'im Hashem had actually destroyed them and they'd started a new nation with Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, it's plan B, plan C, plan D. They're different plans. They're, the, the promise to the Avot that the Jewish people will survive will be fulfilled. What would have happened? Uh, Haman would have slaughtered a lot of Jews probably, but they would have survived somehow. They would have survived it. I don't know if that means that nothing would happen to them. It means that they would have survived. No, what's the proof? Because he says ve'atu betavichtovedu. Why would he say atu betavichtovedu? He's saying himself. He's betavich. He's saying we'll all die, but the Jewish people will uh, will go on. So umiyodea im laet kazot higad lamalchut means Hashem put you into this position to be able to do something. Not that Hashem is going to do it. You know, so it's a. Uh, well, there are many, many examples we could run through, but the point is that it's a bad philosophy. It's bad. It's a bad view. Um, this is what I talked about in the shiur after you know Liel Alei Shalom passed away. That you know the idea that everything is predetermined basically takes the accountability off of the guy who was drunk and killed people and says that it's no, it was Hashem wanted to kill her. Why? What? What? It's comforting to people because they want to believe that there's some ultimate meaning in it. But at the end of the day, actually, uh, Rabbi Moshe showed me, we were having a discussion about it afterwards, and Rabbi Moshe showed me that, the, that Rabbi Ben Chaim had showed him that there's, a, uh, there's an Ora Chaim, actually, who says straight out that sometimes a person can be killed, and it's not B'tzedek. 
That's meaning that the person's killed because the other person was bad. Not because they deserved it. It's a popular topic and sentiment that comes around this time of year when people, when a lot of mainstream Rabbanim talk about Rosh Hashanah and what's happening in Yom Adin, they like to present this image of... Like, it's, yeah, yeah. Now. Yeah, but the thing that they don't tell you is that the decisions are yours that are being made now. Right, you wrote a... Yeah. Right, that's what it says in the in the actual slichot. It says that you're the person who writes in it. You know, meaning that you're the person who writes it, and it says the uh, and even in Netanetokef, which we don't really read, most Torah do not read it, but it says in there that your handwriting is in the book, meaning that you're the person who is really determining what's going to happen. So, in that sense, yes, if you take a person who this is the moment that you have the greatest clarity and you have the greatest sense of self-reflection and introspection and you are at your best and you are making your, your most significant decisions about the coming year, that is going to determine where you are at the end of next year. Absolutely. That's, that is going to determine it. Now, is Hashem involved in that? Of course, because tefillah is predicated on the idea that I'm reflecting on my purpose and my plan, but I'm also recognizing that there are factors that will influence whether that plan is achieved and, uh, and whether I'll have to reconsider and recalibrate and re- reroute my, uh, you know, my, my direction as a result of circumstances beyond my control. That's for sure a part of it but that I'm determining the direction I'm going to go and a person who stands in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and is not moved by it, is not affected by it, is not, doesn't have any resolutions, doesn't have any sense that you know, life is a gift. The idea of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is that life is a gift. That's, that's, that's basically the whole idea of it. Life is not to be taken for granted. Exi- my existence is not. The only existence that's taken for granted is Hashem. The only necessary existence, like the Rambam says, the only existence that has to exist, that will always, always did, right? Adon olam asher malach beterem kol yitzir nivra. Le'it nasa b'chev tzokol azayim melech shemonika. That's v'yachroi kechlot akol levadoyim loch nora. That's what it's talking about. There's only one eternal existence. Everything else, that was the funniest thing. We're driving down the street. We're driving to Be'er Sheva a couple of days ago and on the radio it was like playing Adon Olam. And then, then they had like Adon Aslichot. And it's like a pop music station. It's not even a, not even a religious station. They just all of a sudden the guy's talking about, yeah, this morning I went to Slichot, the DJ. On the, like, it's funny. Anyway, but he's like, it's so important. You got to go to Slichot. And then he puts on some ridiculous pop music after that that has, you know, some Stuyot music. Funny place I live in. But in any case, the point is that in, 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 uh, in, uh, the only existence that's eternal and absolute is God's existence. My existence is contingent and is not to be taken for granted. It's not assumed that it has to be. It's not self-evidently assumed it has to be. And the fact that my, who I am and what I am is determined by what I choose to do with this life. That's what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are about. A person goes through that and doesn't come out with a sense of greater purpose, that person's life is going downhill. If at that moment you still are resistant to the real implications of that, at that moment, the moment that is the moment of truth, you're still not absorbing those implications, then, then yeah, that's a pretty bad situation. You know, that, that's... Uh, but the Rambam says, you know, he quotes over there the Gemara that also, I mean, he, he doesn't, he mentions in Ilchot Tshuva that if the entire Tzibur decides to do Tshuva at any time, the Gzardin can be changed. Right? Because it says, Bechol Koreinu Elav. Whenever we call out to God, he answers us, meaning that the Gzardin can be changed. What does that mean? That means that the key of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I've mentioned this before, but it's really important to understand from a philosophical, metaphysical perspective what's happening. What's really happening on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is not that Hashem is like, look, I have a lot of, I'm very busy. I can only manage to judge all of humanity like for 
certain time of the year because otherwise, you know, the paperwork backs up and all that. It's, the, it's not the, the situation. Is that Hashem establishes from Moshe Shana Yom Kippur a time for us to do a communal teshuvah, a returning to the fundamentals once a year. If we did that mid-year, it would also work, the Rambam says. The Rambam says if the entire community was, did teshuvah and called out to God during any time, really, it would work because it says, b'chol But since we can't orchestrate that ourselves, we as individuals only have once a year that the entire community is recalibrating itself and refining its direction and so on to participate in that as individuals. We have that only once, once a year. Because a person can't fully establish their identity outside of, the, outside of their membership in a certain community. When you go and you start doing something more religious, people are like, oh, you, all of a sudden you became uh, religious. Oh, you know, uh, what, uh, why? We're not good enough for you. You know, why are you doing that? But if you do it during Elul, you say, what do you mean? It's, you know, it's Rosh Hashanah's coming. You know, we're all trying. We're all doing more. We're all doing better. We're all reassessing. We're all, oh, okay, you know, that makes sense then. Meaning when we're doing it together as a community, you don't have to feel that your identity is going against the grain of everybody else. You're doing it together with everyone else. So therefore, because one of the biggest me'akvim of tshuva is being in the same social situation that you were in before. Because you, basically people expect you, oh, what do you mean, Jordan, you're not coming with us to do this shtuyot that we do every week? Whatever, I'm just, I'm not, I'm just making this random thing. I know you don't do any shtuyot, you're too busy. Um, but like, <clears throat> but, you know, a person will say that and you'll be, oh, what a loser. Now he doesn't want to go with us. You know, he became, it's a, uh, it's a natural thing that you feel pressure, social pressure. You, that's why galut is mechaperet. One of the things he says that what is it? Bal tshuva is golemi mikomo. Because he can reinvent his identity. You come to a totally different place. Nobody knows you. Nobody recognizes you. Nobody's ever seen you. You can invent your identity however you want. Nobody will have any expectations of you. But when you go back into the same job, same family, obviously we always have the same family, but I'm saying same setting, same community, same synagogue, same school, same whatever, they have expectations of you already. And those expectations really uh, exert a powerful influence. It's not easy to change who you are when you're in the setting of uh, any kind of communal setting. And so when everyone is moving in the kivun uh, in the direction of chuvas, so then you have an, an advantage. You ride the wave with them. Everyone is doing it. And that's why the whole button, you can push the reset button in a much more powerful way. That's the idea of that anytime the Rambam says, anytime the, chuv, the community does the chuva, they're answered. Because it says, uh, right? that's, that's, the, that's the idea. <clears throat> but it, it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. And that's why galut is mechaperot. And so there's some people that have, there's a midrash that says, that, oh, that's why we have sukkah after Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, because the idea of galut is mechaperot. You're going into a new environment. You leave your house. You go into a different uh, setting. But, uh, but in general, it's, it's very true. When you come to a new place, I just did it, so I know. When you come to a new place, you have the option of how to present yourself, how to... I did it when I came to the Mashadi community. I was one, you know, I, I, in certain ways different in my community before that. I had a new opportunity. I'm going to start in a different way. I'm going to uh, approach things differently. And you have that chance when you move to a new place, but it's hard. It's hard in some ways. It's humbling to, uh, to, to uh, start in a new place because nobody knows you. When I first, uh, you know... When I first came to the Mashiach community, especially because it's so huge, it's very overwhelming. You really feel small and un, you know, insignificant. Uh, but even coming here, nobody knows who I, you know, when I, a year ago I came here, I was just some random guy that walked in and nobody knew who, what's, may, people might have asked, what's my name, who am I, whatever, but like nobody paid a second, uh, uh, gave me a second look. I was just a guy here. And so like, you have the opportunity to present yourself as you, as you want. And uh, like I take for granted that if I come to the Mashiach community and I stand up, people will listen to me talk because they think I'm a rabbi. You know, when I came here, nobody would listen to me talk. Now maybe they would, but you know, before or not. So maybe. <laughs> um, the, but but that's, that's, the, that's the key. Uh, when you... Uh, when you, when you start over, when everyone's starting over, it's so much easier. You're going with the flow.
because you can reestablish your identity like that. Um, and that's it, but I think that's so important. Even the Sefer HaChinuch, by the way, the Sefer HaChinuch is such an, I hope you guys have, have learned it a little bit, but it's, it's such an underappreciated, I'm actually teaching course on it at Eshel this year because I started last year and I just, I decided it's so valuable of a Sefer because there's so many beautiful philosophical nuggets in that, in that book, like very underappreciated uh, book. And one of the things he says is, look, Hashem established Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as a chesed for people to enable them to uh, do Teshuvah, not because he has, a, you know, because there's backup in the, in the office and he can only handle it once a year. It's because, you know, a pers- it's, it's a chesed on a person that they have an opportunity that because the entire community is doing Teshuvah, you can actually have an opportunity, a window where you can do that too. And, uh, and, and renew your year. If a person, that's why there's also a, uh, a chazal that says any, uh, any year that they don't blow the shofar in the beginning of the year, they're going to blow the chatzotzrot in the middle of the year, meaning there's going to be a tzara and they're going to have to, they're going to have a fast with the blowing of the chatzotzrot, right? Meaning if they don't have the right perspective from the beginning of the year, it's going to lead to bad, uh, bad outcomes during mid-year. And that's so, when you're at your best, if you can take five steps forward on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you'll definitely take three steps back once you go back to regular life and regular routine, but at least you gain the two steps, you know? That's, that's, that's the idea. Okay? Okay. All right, so should we move on? Do we have to, or, or should, we wait? Should, we, should we stop here? I don't know what your time schedule is. I know it's late for you guys. Uh, this is a, it's a, new, it's a new chapter. Oh, is it? Okay, so then we'll have a break here then if it seems like it's a new chapter. The main point is that he, the, the idea of free choice, and that's what he's going to elaborate upon, and he, just like he elaborates on in Hilchot Teshuvah, but it's, there's more, you know, he brings a lot of the same ideas and a lot of the same proofs, but it's a different style of uh, presenting the material. So, you know, Bezrat Hashem next week, we'll, uh, we'll continue. After that, um, let's see, next week...